This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I'm Meenakshi from Stories of Win, and I'm thrilled to be here today with Dr. Farzaneh Najafi, who is an assistant professor in the School of Biological Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology, Atlanta. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. Thank you, Meenakshi. I would like to start off by asking about your neuroscience origin story. How and when did you first become interested in studying the brain? I guess it started mostly uh, because uh, my dad is a neurologist and there were a lot of topics at home with him discussing his patients uh, and with my mom. My mom is also a physician, though not a neurologist. So I guess my interest in the brain started there. Though when I was in Iran, I was doing more neurodevelopmental biology kind of questions. And it was not until I came uh, to the U.S. and I started rotating in uh, PhD labs that did systems neuroscience that I decided to do systems neuroscience. So the exact field within neuroscience I decided by rotating in labs, but my interest in the brain, I would say, is mostly because of my dad. Did you also consider becoming um, a doctor or a neurologist? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I actually was in a, I was a medical student back in Iran, and I have a twin sister, so we were both admitted to the medical school and to this um, like research program, which was kind of a competitive research program. And we, it was very hard for us to separate. She liked the clinical work more and I liked the research work more. But eventually, after a couple of months of going to both classes, we had to just choose one. So I quit medical school and I chose uh, that uh, research program that was biotechnology. And even up to now, I feel like I would have always enjoyed clinical work, like something like more of an MD patient, perhaps like doing neurology and maybe seeing patients once a week. And then most of it doing research would have been ideal for me. But but back in Iran, we only have either MD or PhD. We don't have we didn't have MD PhD. So that's why. But yeah. It would have been I imagine it would have been really nice to have a twin sister who's also Apparently interested yeah. in similar things and, and yeah. go through the process with yeah. someone. Um, so you mentioned you did some rotations and um, was that was that during your undergrad and was that how you kind of got interested in um, going to graduate school? Yeah, during my undergrad, I did the research work more in the field of stem cell biology and differentiation of embryonic stem cells to spinal cord neurons. And that's where uh, I decided to do neurodevelopmental biology for my PhD. But then when I came to the U.S. for my Ph.D., that's where I started rotating in like more systems and behavioral neuroscience labs. And that was I very much resonated with it. So I could see that, well, that's exactly what I want to do. I don't want to do genetics, molecular cell biology. I want to do behavior and systems neuroscience. So I would say the rotations really changed my uh, direction. Cool. And um, what lab did you um, eventually do your thesis research in? And could you briefly tell us about uh, what was sure. the main takeaway from your PhD work? Yeah, that was so. Uh, my I did my PhD at University of Pennsylvania Department of Biology, and uh, I did uh, ended up doing my PhD thesis with Javier Medina. He was the fun thing is that he was a new PI, so uh, I was the very first person. And of course, the very first student in his lab. 
And it's funny that now that I have started my own lab, a lot of the things that he was going through, I remember. So I would say those of you who end up joining uh, new PI labs, uh, even though it has, of course, its own challenges and uncertainties, but you will benefit from it when it comes to the time that you want to do your own lab. Yeah. So Javier was studying cerebellum and uh, mice. Uh, and even though after that I ended up moving away from the cerebellum, now for my own lab, I'm coming back to it. So you never know how things wrap up. Maybe <laughs> I, one day I'll come back to stem cells as well. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Um, and how was the, um, the transition then going from graduate school to a postdoctoral position? Were there crucial moments during graduate school that made you that really inspired you to continue down the road in academia or did you consider alternate career choices at that point? Uh, that's a great question. I would say after my PhD, I did not really consider, okay, during my PhD, I had a lot of uh, ups and downs. Like at some point, mid-PhD is always the most challenging part. Always a few years into something is when the excitement is gone. You are doing the repeated things. You start seeing all the uncertainties about that career. So uh, I started thinking about, about going back to medical school, uh, seriously thinking about it. The problem was that uh, I was an international student, so taking loans was not easy for me. So it did not seem like a practical approach for me, besides all the work that I had to put into reading and studying for MCAT and all of that. And then around my PhD, end of my PhD, like 2013 something, uh, data science jobs became very popular. Uh, and uh, another postdoc in our lab was considering them. So I started also considering those. So yes, I would say both medical school and data science jobs became options that I considered because of the, you know, the down moods that I was, every person goes through their PhD. But none of them were really serious. I, at the end of the day, I liked science more and I just went for postdoc. So I didn't do any serious like steps, make any serious steps along those lines. And then for my postdoc, uh, I kind of knew that I wanted to explore fields uh, a little bit out of the cerebellum because uh, I didn't want to confine myself into one field. And especially cerebellum was a little bit detached from the rest of the brain, like their meetings, the conferences, like, uh, so I wanted to a bit explore it. It did uh, come, um, like it was a bit scary because it's like for a good number of five years, you have studied this field, you know a lot. Now you want to go to a field to become a postdoc where most postdocs there have already spent a good five years or four years on that field. So it feels like now I'm going to become a postdoc. I'm supposed to be trained, but I'm actually not quite trained. It's another training for me. It is true, but I would say at the end of the day, it did help me because, you know, it's like by exploring, uh, you get a broader view. And even though you end up spending more time because you need to get it to improve the depth of knowledge. So you made it wider, but now you need to make it deeper. So that comes at the cost of time. But I would say eventually I feel like it's beneficial because you can come up with interesting ideas and perspectives. 
for sure. And um, could you tell us a little bit more about what specifically you focused on within the cerebellum um, uh, field during your PhD? Sure, yeah, which is actually very much relevant to what I'm going to do now in my own lab. So that question is important. So my PhD was about, a lot about uh, what they call uh, prediction error signals, right? That our brain is making predictions. These predictions don't match the actual world. There's an error generated, to, and which leads to updating predictions and hence learning. So in the field of the cerebellum, this is known to occur via climbing fiber signals. And then uh, the question was that how do climbing fiber signals uh, encode prediction errors in single trials? Why? Because after uh, modern learning, which is what the cerebellum is known for, happens in single trials. It's uh, like, um, let's say uh, there is a bump in your office. Uh, and then once you, uh, you, you're about to fall, next time you learn that you have to avoid it or make a different step. So this has to happen then in single exposures to the air. And then the problem is that climbing fibers don't have a right code. Uh, so what that means is that they have a binary code. They are thought to have a binary code. They either fire or don't fire. So the question is that then how do we get graded learning? Because like in that example of a bump in, a, in, in your office, the magnitude of the bump determines how much you will adjust the, your step, right? It's not that you will either make a step uh, or you would not make a step. It depends how much you do it. So then the question was that if climbing fibers don't have a right code, how do we in single trials get the magnitude of the error signal? One idea is that it happens through a population code, through a synchrony code, and that's what others have shown, and I also found it. But the novel finding that we had was that even in uh, individual climbing fibers, not at the level of the population, they do have access to uh, the magnitude of the error signal because at the level of the dendritic calcium signal, when it goes to the protein cells, uh, that calcium signal is analog. Uh, even though the recorded complex spikes uh, in protein results are thought to be binary, but the dendritic calcium signals were analog. And then we kind of linked it to the whole idea about uh, calcium driving plasticity. So saying that basically the magnitude of the error in single trials is encoded via the magnitude of the calcium in protein cell dendrites, which are postsynaptic to climbing fibers, and that leads to graded learning. So the, the controversy was basically how do we get graded learning in single trials out of a binary neural code? Uh, and we showed that not only it happens through a population code called synchrony, but it also happens at the level of single dendrites through changing the magnitude of the calcium, even though historically they are known to be binary. Yeah. That that is really cool. Um, uh, for the for the undergrads in the audience, if you want to um, maybe just explain in simple terms like what you mean by like a population code or a synchrony. Sure. Yeah. So um, by neural code, we mean basically what's in the activity of neurons that represents something. This something could be an external stimulus, a sensory stimulus, or it could be something about the animal's internal state, like the animal's motivational state, arousal state, memories, and all of that. So how neurons represent that, that's the neural code. 
And then uh, when we say a population code, we mean a code that is distributed across a population of neurons. It does not exist in one neuron. Like as I, uh, as I said, like in that example of climbing fibers, let's say we have um, the intensity of the stimulus is um, um, like for auditory stimulus, like 10 decibel versus 30 decibel. In both cases, uh, climbing fibers are historically known to fire just one single uh, complex action potential. They call it complex spike, right? Uh, then the question is that how do we get the intensity of the stimulus from one climbing fiber? Well, the simplest answer is that you don't get it from one climbing fiber. You get it from 100 climbing fibers. How? When the intensity is higher out of 100, 80 fire. When the intensity is lower out of 100, 30 fire. So it's this fraction of coactive neurons, for instance, that is how at the population level you get the uh, intensity, you can rate the intensity. And then what we found was that even in one neuron, even though that complex spike, the one complex spike does not change. However, the amount of calcium that it's associated with at the level of the dendrite, that changes. So this is basically um, knowing that dendritic calciums are different from somatic action potentials. And uh, they, mm, especially for in, in the case of climbing fiber evoked responses, they're actually shown to have different uh, underlying mechanisms as well. But we, we should not be always focused on that somatic uh, voltage changes. There are things also happening at the level of the dendrites, which have a lot of relevance for learning and can potentially underlie these uh, features of learning that we're talking about. Awesome. Uh, so despite all these cool findings, then you decided you wanted to explore um, a slightly different subfield in um, within neuroscience for your postdoc. So uh, what did you eventually decide to do and uh, where did you go? Yeah, sure. So that one, I would say, that I was kind of open to it, and I uh, I contacted multiple labs, uh, and uh, actually one of them also was cerebellum-like structure. So it was not like I didn't contact any cerebellar lab because at the end of the day, some of our choices are not entirely uh, made by us. It's like you contact multiple people, you go see which one works. Like that's a different thing. So uh, I contacted people in the olfactory field, in the um, even flies, I would say, although I was less likely to go and do flies, but I was open to contact different types of people, different researches, all of them good people, with uh, like um, good in the sense that uh, it seemed like they have decent publications and I could see myself as someone who could succeed. Uh, I had also started in a new lab, so I kind of wanted to go at least in a lab that was a bit more established. Those are, though, it was because I started in a new lab. It can be entirely different. If someone has started in a very established lab, they might want to explore the other direction. So I'm saying some of that also was, uh, I had some constraints given what I had learned and what I wanted to learn. Uh, usually when you go for a postdoc lab, um, they see what what is the skill set that you can bring to the lab. So the key skill set that I had in addition to behavior was calcium imaging. I had done two photon imaging during my collaboration with someone lab at Princeton. Um, for about two years, I was going to Princeton during my PhD. 
So, and at that time, I would say 2014, 13, when I was applying, uh, actually 13, uh, two photon imaging was still kind of a hot novel technique. Not everyone had it. So I would say that kind of was the point that distinguished me. And on the other hand, I was trying to learn something new. I didn't want to do the exact cerebellum eye-blind conditioning. So things worked out for me to be uh, for decision-making and Churchland lab uh, mice. Um, but as I said, I uh, interviewed with people who did electric fish, uh, who did flies, uh, olfaction. Yeah, I think it's good to keep an open mind. But again, people have very different strategies and they all turn out to be successful because I guess our success um, depends on our own motivations and what we want to achieve. Um, some people are a lot more targeted. Like they, let's say they start with the visual system, they stay in that field, they do, they contact, there's just one person they want to do their postdoc with. I mean, that also works. And um, actually, I wanted to say that maybe from the beginning to that, I would love to um, share my experiences and all of that. But you should know at the end of the day that everything that I'm saying uh, is conditioned on my person and my type of person. And usually the, um, the type of advice that most works, that the most works for anyone uh, is the advice that comes from a person that has the most alignment in terms of personality with them. Like if I'm someone who is very different from you in terms of how I get things done or how I think about things, then perhaps my advice is not too relevant. So this is just a general thing to know that uh, my advice is most relevant to people who kind of have a similar type of thinking or decision-making to me. Yeah. Those are some really good points, right? There are multiple strategies to success. And today we're showcasing one. And even in your case, um, it makes a lot of sense that you wanted to explore something new and also wanted like a complimentary mentoring experience in an environment. Awesome. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, what was the question you addressed during your uh, postdoctoral work? Sure. So uh, in my postdoc, uh, actually, I kind of started open. Like uh, at some point when I started, I was thinking about studying trial history. And then uh, things changed a lot, uh, like uh, down the road. This is also another thing that you... Mm, not necessarily uh, what you end up working on or publishing is what you first wanted to work on. And I guess it's also good as long as you mm, you make sure, like, there is a goal, you're moving towards that goal. So some deviations happen, but as long as you're focused on that goal, uh, it's not a problem. Uh, but uh, I definitely, it hasn't been a straight path for me almost ever. What I ended up working on uh, happened to, and at some point I was also very much interested about learning. So it happened to be uh, looking at the excitatory and inhibitory um, populations and uh, trying to see how their uh, encoding of decision parameters change uh, throughout learning. Uh, and what can we learn from that experimental data uh, to, um, about uh, the model, decision circuit models, uh, in terms of how excitatory and inhibitory neurons are connected 
to uh, um, during decision making. So the gist of it, what we found was that the majority of decision circuit models use uh, this simple pattern of uh, simple architecture of global inhibition, meaning that uh, even though we have selective excitatory populations, one population says, I like uh, to choose uh, option one. Another population says, I like to choose option two. And what I mean by that is when this population A is active, you go for option A. When population B is active, you go for option B. Uh, Think about option A and B as, for instance, whether uh, you... um, you're deciding to go to your um, f- friend's house or to go to a park. Let's say th- something like that. And then the idea is that there is one population of one single population of inhibitory neurons that is non-selective. It doesn't care whether you go to this place or to the other place. And uh, the majority of decision circuit models have uh, assumed this. But what I found in my postdoc work was that no, just how we have selective populations of excitatory neurons, we also have selective inhibitory populations. So instead of having non-selective connectivity between excitatory and inhibitory neurons, we then must have selective connectivity. So uh, the idea was that um, uh, we have two populations of selective excitatory and two populations of selective inhibitory neurons. And that's um, uh, not what has been taught previously. And then throughout learning, we saw that these populations um, grow in parallel, meaning that it's not like excitatory neurons become selective earlier and then later in training inhibitory. No, actually, so it seemed like these selective connectivity, this selective connectivity grows as the animal learns the task. That is very interesting. Um, Mapping out neural circuits and relating to relating structure to function is in general a very big challenge and goal in neuroscience and at a microcircuit level trying to do that with different um, excitatory and inhibitory populations is uh, is super cool okay so then um, you went on to do something very interesting uh, you worked for a few years as a scientist at the allen institute for brain science so tell us about your experience there um, how different was that position compared to a traditional um, academic postdoc or a professorship yeah yeah i would say uh, um, this was actually an interesting time point for me at the end of my postdoc to know what i want to do um, I I was kind of not quite ready to start a faculty position, even though, I mean, very much, very late, like in December, I sent out some applications, but it was more for me to see how this whole thing is. I, because normally, if you want to be serious, you have to send out applications in July, August, something like July. So I was very late. And then uh, I was also unsure about my decision. So I had... Uh, a few options. One was out of academia doing data science jobs. I went on, again, uh, phone calls with some of these data science uh, companies. It didn't intrigue me. So I ended up not doing that. And again, I had the deep down, I knew I love science. So it was there. I was just not sure about what I want to do. Or maybe I didn't have the full confidence to say, oh, I want to be the, the uh, API. The other option for me was to do another postdoc. That I was absolutely not ready for um, because, you know, another postdoc is a lot of commitment. It's a lot of commitment. I had already had um, a decent length of PhD postdoc and I was so not 
interested in starting another postdoc. And I'm very happy that in my case, again, it was a great decision given my type of person. Uh, for some other people, it might work perfectly fine to do another postdoc. But for me, I was I didn't want to do another one. Uh, the other option was startup, some startup science companies. So I did actually talk to this startup neuroscience company that did very interesting work about um, brain organelles. And because they had become like this is now 2019 and they or 18, 19, and they were very, again, a hot topic, uh, organelles. Uh, and the startup was started by two PIs in Colombia and San Francisco. So it had that, you know, that academic uh, um, um, like spirit that I loved was in it. But I remember when I was talking to the uh, to one of the founders of the startup, I said that I want to keep the academic uh, option open. And my concern is that during this time that I'm here, we, we will not be able, because it's the startup, we will not, not be able to present posters. And he kind of also was on the same page with me that maybe then this is not the best option. So, uh, and then uh, the other place that I applied was Allen, which was uh, both still academia. I know it's not traditional academia, but academia in the sense that they have, they publish, they go to conferences, it's all like that. And it was not a postdoc. So it was the perfect option for me. And I am now four years down the road. I am super happy with that choice uh, because it really broadened my view and I learned skills that I, or lessons that I would have never learned by doing a second postdoc. Because a second postdoc, yes, you can learn, uh, maybe um, feel slightly different, but quite relevant. You become, again, more uh, of an uh, expert scientist and all of that. But Allen Institute, uh, it's, a, it's, an, uh, it's a scientific place, but it has some key differences with traditional academia. One is that they do open science. So, and I loved it. I, by all means, uh, I liked to I am just generally a person that shares easily so I don't like to see I have some findings and I keep it to myself because I'm scared or something so it was very much aligned with my way of thinking and the other key feature about it is the team science which was very new to me uh, I mean in both my PhD and postdoc I had collaborations like lots of collaborations in my postdoc I had collaborations with Columbia John Cunningham's lab, I had collaborations with UCL, Peter Latham's lab, and I made great friends through these collaborations. But collaborations in academia are kind of different. They're called collaborations, but the reality is that you're doing part of the job, they're doing part of the job. There is not a lot of real team, you know, in the way that it happens in industry back and forth. And you wouldn't know this really until you get the firsthand experience with how things are. So in Allen, they have that style of team science. Of course, Allen also, they have smaller groups. It depends what group you end up joining. And they have these very larger groups. I was first in a very small group, and then I went to one of the larger teams. But uh, again, I made sure that I'm working uh, on a clear project because uh, I had the 
the perspective of going back to academia in mind. So I wanted to make sure it's not like I do a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. So I'm focused on a few projects or one or two projects. So even though it's team science, lots of authors, and I will be a middle author, but I can claim this as something that I worked on. I can take it to job talks with me, talk about it. So I'm saying uh, I took advantage of the great things about open science, team science, but at the same time, I was also a little bit careful on that side that I'm not spreading myself too thin on many things. Uh, And I would say it was a great experience for me. Uh, Yeah, I think I gained much more there than if I had done a second postdoc. But again, these are all coming from me, for my personality. It worked for me. Yeah. For sure. That's super nice to to really hear um, your story and how it all worked out really well for you. But um, would you say, did you always consider that as kind of a, a short-term option to to just explore this world of team science, um, team and open science, um, and then like come back to a more traditional position? Or did you also consider um, being there more long long-term? So, you know, the answer to these questions is that on the surface level, the answer is uh, no, I had no idea. I just let myself explore things uh, and it was life and the events and things that happened that changed the f- fate or the, uh, the final decision for me. But I feel like this is not quite an accurate answer because I feel like at the end of the day, it's us and what makes us feel satisfied that determines what we end up doing. So. For sure, part of it is life. Maybe if things had changed down the road in Seattle, for me, I would have stayed. I don't know. But I think that's not quite the full picture. And a good portion of that comes with me that, no, I was really someone who wanted to... um, I wanted to do something serious about science, meaning that I would... Okay, so maybe this is the best way I can explain it. One great thing program that Alan has is that scientists can have uh, interns. So we, you hire an intern and they work on a project that you define for them. And the amazing thing about it is that you do this whole process by yourself. It was my very first time to write a, a proposal to hire someone, interview a lot of uh, good undergrads and masters uh, somewhat, uh, I would say mostly undergrad. Well, these are undergrads who are graduated. And then pick one and then this person, you're just like a PI for them for a short time, for the summer. Uh, But I mean, yes, during my PhD and postdoc, I had worked with uh, new people who come. I would help training them. There was an undergrad in my postdoc who I helped. Uh, like with another postdoc. But this was, again, just how I'm saying team science in Allen Institute is different from collaborations, the way that you mm, mentor an intern and how you start the entire hiring process. I mean, as a PhD or postdoc, it's the person who you might mentor, even if it is a serious mentoring, has been chosen by your PI. But in this case, it was really me who defined the project and took the uh, hired the student and interviewed and all of that. And I saw how much I loved this process of having a student, defining a project for them, going through it, doing analysis, deciding how we want to change things. And this was only a data analysis because it was a three-month thing. We couldn't do any experiments. So I would say that internship experience and mentoring an intern and the entire, the full picture 
was extremely helpful for me to say that, no, this is what I want to do as opposed to data science jobs, as opposed to startup. Uh, that helped massively. Uh, the other thing is that COVID happened and we ended up, Alan has all, had also very strict policies. So there was a long time of working from home. And yes, even though we are working, what we all know work from home is never like working in person. So that gave me some time and that helped me with thinking about what I want to do. And especially another uh, great uh, lucky thing that happened with me at Allen was that I talked to you about my PhD work about prediction error signals and the cerebellum. And now at the Allen, I, uh, there was this finding already before I went there, but I also found it in my uh, data analysis independently that when there are these unexpected visual uh, signals, then we see these inhibitory neurons in the visual cortex fire. So you can think of unexpected visual signal as a prediction error, or that was how I like to think about it because I, I was coming from that background. So now I see that individual cortex inhibitory neurons fire uh, when there's a prediction error signal. Climbing fibers also I found 10 years or eight years ago fire. So that was like, wow, this is an interesting thing. Let me write a research project, um, research statement about this. And you know, I guess seeing that I love to mentor and intern, seeing that I have something that I'm excited about, um, so I should say that at the end of my postdoc, the research statement that I wrote, I told you like I wrote something very quick, late, just to see how this process is. That one was entirely different. That one was, had nothing to do with the cerebellum. It was about decision making and more neuromodulatory system, which was kind of a wrong thing for me to do because I had never studied neuromodulatory system, but I loved it and I still love it. And I think down the road at some point I will switch to neuromodulatory, not switch, but incorporate that into my research. So I'm saying that I ended up writing two extremely different research statements. The first one was more something that had come from my uh, feelings and what I like to do, but less backed up. Like neuromodulation was entirely new to me. The second one was a lot more informed. Like this is my PhD, this is my postdoc, I'm bringing them together. That's how it makes me an interesting applicant because I can talk about cerebellum and visual cortex interaction, something that not that many people do out there. We either have cerebellar people or visual cortex people. And then there's something that is bringing all of that together, these prediction signals. So I'm saying that aspect that gave me the confidence that I can write a research statement that is good also helped. Um, but when I went to Allen, no, I didn't necessarily know what I want to do. But I was making sure that I keep the option of academia open by not going to a startup, by not going to data science jobs, by not working on projects that could not give me the type of paper or the type of job talk that is required. While I constantly had the uncertainty in my mind that do I want to do academia or not? So, but I still was safe in my choices because deep down I knew I like academia. Uh, talking about the the research topics that you worked on, you mentioned briefly about um, these inhibitory neurons firing to some kind of a, a prediction, visual prediction error. Um, was it was it just kind of serendipitous that you ended up working on a like a more a prediction error related project I that was also yes. 
Yeah, I mean, when I joined, I actually joined uh, Jerome Lecoq's group. Later, I joined Sean Olsen. But first, I joined Jerome Lecoq's group. And uh, I went there to study the signals, uh, data from mesoscopes, which are these uh, very advanced uh, two-photon scopes, uh, multiple um, fields of view. They uh, developed it first at Genelio, then at uh, Allen Institute. And then the data that I started analyzing VIP neurons, I saw there is that signal. I was very excited. I told Jerome and Jerome said, yes, before you also Marina found it and she actually has a paper on it. So I'm saying the finding was there. Like uh, I didn't know about that paper. And then we ended up working together with Marina and my main paper now at Allen is from there. But yes, I would say that I had no idea about that paper when I joined Allen. Well, actually, that paper was on bioarchive, I guess, when I joined Alan, or maybe not. I cannot remember, but that that data was there, yeah. But in terms of um, the independence that one would generally have when they join um, an institute like uh, like Alan, uh, would you say um, is it somewhat constrained in terms of like what research topics you can choose and work on, and what groups you could work with? So. Mm, I wouldn't say it's okay. In some aspects, it's not too different because here, let's say, whether you go and work with uh, someone who works on um, visual cortex or auditory cortex, if you go to a visual cortex lab, you're not going to do olfaction or auditory, right? It's the same there. If you go to a group that is doing theory uh, work, you're not going to be doing that type of data analysis that I'm talking about. They do more like theoretical modeling. Then uh, there... Uh, Groups also, they had like, I joined mesoscope group, but then I ended up joining the visual behavior team. There's one thing important about Allen Institute that uh, in the last couple of years that I was there, they started they during this transition period that this group that I was part of, MindScope, is now becoming part of this new group led by Carl Svobota, which is called Neural Dynamics. Everything I'm telling you is about MindScope, which is not going to exist in a year or so. Neural Dynamics is new. Carl Svoboda is there. I have, uh, I generally know what they're talking about in a broad way, but in terms of the details of how teams they are, the independency, I don't know much. So um, my information about Alan does not quite relate to the new Allen, the new neural dynamics. That said, when I was at Allen, you are right. We couldn't go like with this same VIP uh, emission signal. I love to tweak a parameter in the experimental setup, but the data was already collected. It was not as easy for me to say, oh, let's do this. Like they have the pipeline teams. From what I know in the new neural dynamics team, it's not as structured so there is more flexibility i believe again it depends also what you end up doing do you end up being in the data analysis and computational side or on the experimental side uh, it has to be within what they're working on which from what i know is more on the foraging and value-based decision making kind of tasks but i think neural dynamics has a bit more freedom in terms of uh, experiments um, it's it may not be too different from an academic lab, because I don't think they are doing that style of pipelines that the previous like MindScope had. But yeah, at my time, uh, with regards to the experiments, we were more constrained, and I never ended up being on the experimental side when I was at Allen. Got it. 
Um, and you just started your own lab um, at Georgia Tech uh, in Jan 2023. Um, so let's talk about um, to tell us about how the the last couple of months have been, and also like leading up, uh, leading up to it. So you you mentioned some of the challenges you faced um, at the end of your first postdoc, at the end of your postdoc, where maybe you didn't feel as confident, um, or you you didn't exactly know what you wanted to do, and how how did all of that change when you eventually applied and when you were in the when you were in the job market? Like how did you were there still challenges in your mind in deciding or wanting to become a PI and how did you address that or, and overcome that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are very great questions and very informative. Uh, yeah, I would say, uh, so the way it worked for me was that by, by writing the research statement, that's where it starts. And I took my time. It took like, maybe I started in 2020 slowly and I applied in 2022, I guess, or one, I can't remember, but it was a good year and a half. Again, different people are different. I'm more on the um, thorough, slow side of things, taking my time doing things. And uh, once I had the research statement, then uh, uh, that teaching statement, uh, diversity statement, those are the uh, easier parts. Easier if you teaching statement is easier if your focus is not on the teaching positions. Otherwise, the uh, the priority reverses. So uh, you apply and then um, I think as long as you have written a good research statement and your CV uh, has uh, some good publications, by good I don't mean um, necessarily nature and science. I had no grants. I mean, I was international for a long time before I became a, a permanent resident. So I had lost the I didn't have really the opportunity to go for uh, any of those common grants like F32, K99. So I didn't have that. With the private grants, um, I was I applied for a couple of them and I was not lucky. So I'm saying my CV was empty on the side of grants. And this concerned me and I thought, oh, I'm not going to be competitive. Mm, uh, but as I'm saying, I think I did write a thoughtful research statement. Uh, and then uh, my CV was decent. Um, I wouldn't say nothing too amazing, but I, I did have some good publications. I think once you are like that, uh, then, and I'm hoping I got good letters. I assume I got, I have no idea what they wrote for me, but I think it was good. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I think with that, you are likely, um, more than 50% likely to get some initial interviews. Once you get to that stage, then it's all in your hands now because um, it passed that initial stage. Now it's you who has the chance to put an impression, meaning that you prepare an amazing job talk. Amazing job talk is not easy. That means you have to really put time into it and practice, practice with people. And I did a lot of these time things. Chalk talk, I practice like my amazing friends all over. I would put them together, set, like which I'm grateful to them. And I have a lot of them from PA, from my time at UPenn, Princeton, Cold Spring. Like one advantage of like doing here and there, even though it lengthens your training time, and even though um, maybe I am a bit late in starting my faculty, by a bit, maybe we're talking about a couple of years. Um, I don't think I'm later than five years, let's say. But the advantage is that I have all these connections here and there. I've made great friends, helpful. So they were. I would set up these virtual meetings with them. And thank God we learned that 
we can do these things. Otherwise, before that, we always thought, oh, if I'm here, it's only the group of people around me who can help. No, I started setting things with my friends in Germany that have moved to Germany. So I'm saying, at this point, I spend a lot of time on my job talk and job talk. And uh, that's why I'm saying that once you get the invitation, then it's you. Do a great job with your job talk and job talk, and you'll get the job. As long as you're a good fit, that comes number one. And what I mean by that is that if the department is looking for someone with cell molecular expertise and you're a systems behavioral neuroscience, you're not going to be among their top three candidates. Like, forget it. If the department or if they're looking for someone computational doing AI and you're not doing that, forget it. You're, but if they're looking for a good systems behavioral neuroscience and you do what I did, you have a good chance. Of course, there are a lot of other great applicants also. So part of it is the luck, where they end up accepting, who they end up getting, like those you don't have control over. But the things you do have control over is to write a good, thoughtful research statement, is to join your PhD and postdoc to try to be, to have good publications. Um, and again, of course, if you manage to do nature and science, amazing. But if you can't do it, it's also fine as long as you have a story to talk about. When you go to your job talks, it should be a coherent story. I spent a lot of time to bring in all my work, which was not easy because cerebellum decision-making and now Allen Institute, it was very difficult. I had to pick. I prepared two separate types of job types, one cerebellum and Allen Institute, one cerebellum and postdoc. And then I ended up in some of my interviews, I did one version. It didn't seem to go well. I did the other version in the other ones. So I'm saying I really put thought into it. It was not like, oh, I'm taking... 10 slides from here, 10 from there. No, I made it a coherent story. Lots of feedback from people and improving. So once you do all of that effort, then outside that is not your control. You did your job. You did a perfect job. If it works, great. If it didn't, maybe it didn't work this time. Try maybe another year. But at least like during that entire job application process for me, it was like I am going to do my best if it well, best as much as I can. I mean, within my capabilities. I'm not saying the best from a from an absolute perspective. Relative to me, my best. And then, if it works, great. If not, I say at the island, my plan was well, we were going to get merged with neural dynamics. So I had that option B as well. Uh, and I was really not killing myself to get the faculty position. It was absolutely not like that. And I think, and I believed in it. It was not something that I would just say. And I think that reduced the pressure on me. Um, so, yes, I did have all the uncertainties throughout. I'm telling you, because I didn't have grants, I always felt like I'm not going to be very competitive. Or, I mean, we have all seen it and heard it from our PIs and different people that faculty positions, like they don't have life. So I, Alan had a great work-life balance. So I kind of got used, so I got spoiled there. And it's Seattle, <laughs> the summers are like heaven. It's the PNW culture where people are all the time hiking. And so in general, they have, a, they have their own culture there. It's not very much focused on work. It's a lot actually very much like enjoying nature and life too. And you see that culture in Allen Institute too. So it was different, very different from uh, labs where you're working very hard from academic lab. So um, 
it was hard for me to think, oh, I'm going to start a job now. I don't have a life. The work-life balance is going. Um, so I'm saying I, I had all sorts of uncertainties and also thinking whether I'm going to be able to get grants, whether I'm going like, um, no, it was never like uh, I came 100% certain that this is the job that I will be able to do. But compared to like 2018, when I applied at the end of my postdoc, I, I had a lot a way better written research statement and a lot more informed that I enjoy being a mentor because of the internship uh, experience, not intern, like mentoring interns that I got at Allen and my confidence overall, which part of it comes from experience, right? My confidence overall had, uh, I didn't see it as too far from me to be a PI. So those three things did happen, but the uncertainties are with you, were with me all the time. Thanks so much for sharing that. That's all very helpful. And especially for just all our listeners to know that um, we, we just can just do the best in whatever we can control. Um, and the rest of it is just what it is. And um, if it's, Absolutely. yeah, with over time, with all the, with the experience, and once we know that this is what we want, and if we do our best with whatever we can control, we're going we're gonna to have that. Um, okay, so how have the last um, couple of months been oh, after yeah. starting your own lab? Um, and just what are the scientific questions uh, that sure. your lab is now interested yeah. in? So uh, when, when I started uh, here, well, I started January 9th because I was on vacation at the beginning. So I would say the first month here was kind of really crazy for me in terms of how overwhelming things were and how different. Like um, I had to now, I had become a people manager now. And I also started with a technician, which is great. I was very lucky on that side. But at the same time, it put me in this people management role immediately as soon as I started. And then uh, the way you're treated also entirely changes once you become a PI. Like up to one month before uh, I was treated. And this is more like because you become a people manager now, it's very different. Like the authority that you get changes a lot how you're treated by the people around you. Um, and then the amount of admin work that you end up doing, especially if you start an experimental lab, because there's a lot of equipment buying and ordering, especially if your system's behavior, um, mouse, like so many equipments that you have to buy. And like, it's not like you go and you say, oh, I want to buy this scope. No, there's a lot of research that has to go to that. And many of us are more on the perfectionist obsessive side. We want to look at all the parameters, optimize everything. So that, so I would say it was really overwhelming for me, but, and a lot of novelty, novelty and learning so many things about grants, budgeting here and there. So I was really bombarded with a lot of information. Um, the admin role I had to, um, I wanted to submit a grant as soon as I came for this foundation grant, writing animal protocol, then my teaching is not even started and I, uh, I don't have a real mentoring job in the sense that yes, there are a couple of students that I'm working with, but it's not like they are collecting data and I have to. So I'm saying if there are four jobs, uh, I think there are four jobs. One is the uh, research that you have to do the science part, right? Grants. The other is the admin part. So many emails you get from students, from these companies. It's just like literally my entire thing 
they can be spent on just emails and that just becomes a day. And that was a skill that I had to learn. How am I going to prioritize these emails? Otherwise, I'm coming here and I'm leaving and all I have done has been like an admin responding to emails. And also the whole thing about, I actually started writing uh, something for myself that I plan to also post it, maybe put it on my website about my journey as a PI. The things that I've learned through, like during this one month and a half that, uh, for example, with equipment shopping, don't take it too, uh, don't become too crazy about it. Don't ask 10 companies, go with two companies, pick one. Many of it is like deciding, you have to make fast decisions when you become a PI and so many decisions. And if you are someone uh, like me who wants to optimize every single parameter and that makes you indecisive and that makes decision making difficult for you, it becomes so challenging. So I think during that one month I had a, I went through this massive adaptation that knew that strategy is absolutely not working because on a daily basis, I have to maybe make 10 decisions. It's not going to work. It's not going to be like before here that I would take three months to make one decision, maybe or forever, sometimes years. I just have to make a quick decision. Like it's not maybe the great decision, the best decision, the most optimal, but just make it. So I'm saying a lot of learning that I'm going through. And I guess the first month was maybe the, the most challenging part of it. Now I feel better. As I said, the teaching and mentoring has not quite officially started. So most of my job now is equipment shopping and uh, research and admin jobs well maybe equipment shopping we can put it as part of admin and then the whole thing about my lab renovations are not done yet my office renovations are not done yet but even though there are all these challenges i would say you know i guess those of us who decide to become a pi we are the type of people that we don't enjoy having free time where we don't have anything to do I really don't enjoy it. Like for me, not having anything to do is very boring, extremely boring. And I'm not also the type of person that if I have some free time, I can immediately like say, oh, I'm going on this camping trip. Oh, I'm going to this uh, party. So I'm not that type of person either. So I'm saying at the end of the day, the decisions that we make are aligned with our personality. For my personality, even though this job is to be honest, insane. You are doing four jobs at least, if not more. You are being paid less than one job in industry. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very stressful. But I feel like, and I, I've been asking myself during this month, why did I do this? Like I was having a heavenly life at Allen Institute. But I feel like I was more ambitious than staying at Allen Institute. I wanted to do more with my life. So so I'm, I just tell myself, be honest with yourself. You made this choice. It's not like no one decided for you. And it's because you, you I was someone who would get bored. Uh, I wanted to constantly have something to do and feel like um, I'm doing something with my life. So for this type of personality, academia works. That's it. I entirely feel like the amount of job that as a PI we have to do is insane. And compared to how much financial return it has for you. So, but what are 
the alternative options there, I know I'm not a startup person. I'm not an industry person. I'm not a data science person. If there was some place that I could do exciting science, maybe. But again, I wouldn't have the, uh, you know, now I'm the PI of the lab. I choose what I want to work on. I choose who I want to work on. I choose what I want to buy for my lab. So this is all really pleasant. And the reason I'm saying this is that I feel like many times we hear our PIs, we see them stressed, we hear them complaining. Uh, and this always is for me, like, uh, you know, when, for example, our parents always complain about, oh, it's much better not to be married. Many parents do that, right? <laughs> but the reality is that they don't say about the good parts of it. And if, if you're naive, you would just listen to that. You wouldn't see the whole picture. The same thing about academia. Yes, absolutely, it's a lot of work. It's very stressful. My sleep has been definitely uh, worsened since I've started this job. And I'm trying to find solutions like meditation here and there to somehow manage this extremely busy mind that I have now, because it's like I'm setting up my behavioral, I have to do a behavioral paradigm. I have to decide on what I, what exactly I want to do, what company I want to be in touch with, what kind of two-photon microscope I want to buy. It's a lot of thinking, who I want to hire, how was this person, this master's, that man, that uh, undergrad, this PhD student. So, and this mind is constantly busy. And of course, that's affecting my sleep. And that's not healthy. Like, I am trying to make sure I go to the gym. I'm trying to make sure, at least on the physical side, I'm keeping myself healthy. But the mental side is much harder because that's a... So uh, I'm saying that uh, there are all these challenges and maybe those are mostly what we've seen from our PIs. And then we might think, is this, no, I don't want to do it. Because for a long time, I was like that. I was like, do I want to, losing my work-life balance was always one of the biggest reasons I, I hesitated going to academia. But I just want to say that I want to make sure you also hear about the good parts of it, which is to have the authority to lead a group, decide for the scientific question. It's really enjoyable. If you have a type of personality like me, I really enjoy to be in the position that I'm the leader and I can decide and I can choose what I, I want to work on. That is extremely rewarding as well. And again, what were I going to do if I had, an, had a more relaxing job? For me, not doing things, not having anything to do is boring. So I guess for me, it makes sense to do this job. And then back to what you said about the scientific questions. Yeah, so as I said, for me, it was uh, all this um, amazing finding at the Allen Institute with uh, VIP neurons responding to visual unexpected inputs and then climbing fibers. So what I want to study now is to basically study how cerebellum and cortex contain, uh, how different internal models of the world they contain. Internal models are about our predictions of the world, right? Uh, and then um, the idea is that we have them in the cortex, we also have them in the cerebellum. How this thing are they, how do they communicate with each other? to represent uh, predictions about the world. So the classical theory is that the cerebellum is more about the modern world, the cortex is more about the perceptual world. Uh, so maybe our predictions about the modern world. For instance, when I want to reach out for an object, I need to have a prediction of what this object is made of so I can decide on how to make a grip, how much force to apply. So this is a prediction in the modern domain. So this is known to be a cerebellum thing. 
then when we go to the cortex, like uh, our predictions that affect our perceptions. For instance, when you see white and black patches that are in the form of a soccer ball, even though even if they don't look like a soccer ball, you see it as a soccer ball. Why? Because even though the sensory inputs are just white and black patches, but in your brain, you already have had prior exposure. So there's this internal model that this shape corresponds to a soccer ball. So that's how predictions affect your perception. And this is more of a cortical uh, cortical um, type of function. And so what I want to do uh, is to train mice on a range of tasks. because, And that's also my background that I did both I believe in conditioning, I did decision-making, visual type of uh, tasks that I want to train them on both sensory motor adaptation all the way to more cognitive and decision-making and introduce, make make it easy for mice to make predictions and then uh, violate those predictions. And then I want to study how the cerebellum and the cortex respond to these um, prediction evolutions and prediction violations. And then importantly, I want to see whether the internal models in each region is locally formed or it requires the other region. For instance, the cortex sends or the cerebellum sends predictions and then the cortex uses those to generate prediction uh, errors. So there are these, uh, uh, like if you're familiar with Rowe and Ballard, like a classical hierarchical predictive coding models, mostly it's taught for the um, cortex and visual cortex. So I want to studied them in the context of the cerebellum and especially cortical cerebellar interactions. So I'm, and, uh, as I'm saying, like these things to think about some idea and pursuit are also very rewarding. Yes, but thinking about how is it's going for me to get grants uh, and then it's going to be my first grant because I don't have grants before that. These are the, the stressful parts of it, but uh, I'm hoping things will work out. I mean. Thanks for being super raw and uh, very honest about what sure. what life as a new PI is like because yeah I guess everyone knows it but just to like um, just to realize that there the, the, there are the stressful aspects and the very rewarding aspects and trying to take that together and see whether it uh, fits your personality type is super important. Um, okay, to end on a fun note, um, I mean you've you've been telling us um, how busy your life is, but have you been? What would you like to do, uh, either as a hobby or just to like relax and you know feel refreshed when you want to come back? Um, yeah, when you want, sure. want to come back to it. Yeah, there are two things that I like. One is that I really like to play volleyball, and I uh, used to do it both at Cold Spring Harbor at uh, in Seattle. I haven't been uh, I haven't been honestly looking around even. Uh, but I also feel like when time passes, I will be able to better manage my time and maybe I can find it. Uh, so in the past one month and a half, I haven't done any of this. And the other thing <laughs> I like is that I, um, there is this uh, Persian instrument uh, called Kamanche. It's a bow instrument. So I used to play it for several years. Uh, I have stopped taking classes for a couple years now. And I so much want to restart it because, as I said, with that part of also putting my mind at rest um, it helps. So I would say that playing Kamanche, the, the instrument, uh, the Persian instrument, and playing volleyball are the two things that I enjoy. But as of now, I'm not doing either of them. In the weekends, I'm trying to explore Atlanta. I'm very new here. So at least taking my bike and going to a park or something. And gym I do. I try to do regularly uh, the workout. Uh, I wouldn't say I necessarily enjoy it. I see it more as a task that I have to do. Otherwise, I'm really not taking care of my body. 
<laughs> we we ended up um capturing your story at this very busy point of your life but i'm sure in a few months um you're going to find time for all these amazing um, so hobbies much. maybe not in a few months but hopefully several <laughs> yeah. years <laughs> <laughs> for sure thank you so much farzane thanks for taking the time out and sure, sharing your you. really inspiring story with us it was sure, such a pleasure best of luck with all your choices just know that uh, whatever you do is fine and don't compare yourself with anyone because and uh, no one has uh, had the same life experiences as you or has the same genes as you so uh, just see what works best for you and if you're unsure give yourself some time don't be too worried about it uh, yeah it's fine to take your time to become more certain about what and explore things but be wise in how you explore things so if something is a possibility for you to pursue you don't want to close that option yeah so i would say and don't don't take your insecurities too serious either everyone deals with insecurities the key is to be aware of them uh, know uh, why you have them and then not to feed into them you know that uh, they're coming for this reason everyone has it i should not take it seriously or how i should address it basically but it's not bad to have them everyone has them people are just different in how sharing they are about the challenges they go through that's a really beautiful advice i think the whole theme in our um in our chat today has been has been this right like everyone is different and and there are so many different strategies and and exactly. to success and and try to figure out what works for your personality and and it's okay to take take your time to do that Exactly and whether academia or not academia like all of them works uh, as long as it's what what is aligned with your interests and absolutely type of person. Okay, thank you so much again. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. Sure, have a great day.